Well, when Daniel said he would be willing, I think it was in a fire board meeting, uh, Daniel and I both have the privilege of serving on the fire board together, and that's how we kind of got to know each other, especially we were both brand new on the board together, so we, we were learning as we went, and he volu- was, I don't know if you volunteered or if you were volunteered to, to do a Northeast, it was a little bit of both, wasn't it? And I said, hey, if you'll do it, I'll come out. And I did not offer to preach, um, but uh, our brother had to back out, and so, uh, for health reasons, so, and remind me of his name, Hugh Diggins, and his, it's his wife's going through some health things, and so remember them in prayer, uh, because he would have been the one uh, preaching, and you may, um, when we're done, have, have wished uh, uh, that he was here instead of me, um, but... Uh, Daniel called me and said, would you be willing to preach? I said, sure, I'm going to be there. So um, it is a privilege to open God's word uh, to you here at, uh, at, at 1 Peter chapter 2. I was telling our congregation where I was going uh, this week and what we were doing. And, uh, you know, I had a, uh, the story of the, of, you know, pastors when they get together, you, you begin talking and fellowshipping and sharing your struggles. And there was a group of pastors that got together and we're talking with one another, and there were four guys, and they said, you know, we really should, you know, strengthen our fellowship with one another. Let's, we should be vulnerable with one another, share one another's burdens. And so, brother, you know, and one, one guy started, he said, I'll just, I'll just be honest with you. I, 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 I struggle sometimes with, uh, with alcohol. Could you pray for me on that? And it's a real struggle of mine. And uh, yes, we'll pray for you. What about you, brother? Well, I struggle with gambling. Let's pray for that. What about you? I struggle with anger. Let's... And the fourth guy was just sitting there, and they were all looking at him like, we all shared, aren't you going to share? He says, I don't know if I want to. And they said, you need to share, brother. And he says, well, I have to be honest with you, I I deeply struggle with gossip, and I cannot wait to get home. (laughs) So hopefully that's not what we will experience as a fellowship, but it'll be rich fellowship over the word, over food together, over times together. Um, When you... I'm happy to preach first. The last time I spoke at a fire conference, I was preaching last, which is always, I don't know who's preaching last, but pray for that, brother. Is it Tony? Yeah, so, because what happens when you preach last is, because you're all preaching on the same theme, we're in the same text, essentially, and so we're all going to, unfortunately, be trying not to say everything Tony wants to say at the end of the sermon, but everybody, when you're first, you can say whatever you want, because... So the, the goal of the opening preacher is twofold. One is to sort of set the table, right, to get, to get us into the text, to get us context for it, to kind of open it up so that you're, you're setting things up for everybody else to, uh, to go off of, and then you get to sit down and enjoy the rest of the conference. But the, the main topic, number two, is that very thing, is to not say, not try, try not to say things that uh, your other uh, fellow shepherds in the Word are, are going to say. So we're going to attempt to do that. But because of that... Um, in an effort to preach 1 Peter 2.9, um, I'm going to try to set the context of, uh, of this whole book and what's going on in this book, right? Because Peter is writing this letter to encourage suffering, persecuted believers, probably in Asia Minor, uh, to stand firm in the grace of God. And he gets there in chapter 5. And Peter challenges from the very beginning, if you just notice in the very first verse of the letter... He challenges these beleaguered Christians to see themselves as, and I love the term he uses, elect exiles, right? Chosen by God, and yet exiles and aliens in the world. 
And that's what they were facing. To recognize that we've been chosen by God, but live as strangers and wanderers in a world. Citizens of heaven, longing for that true home that will one day come. And in doing so, Peter urges us to persevere in faith and love, especially in times of trial and struggle, because we have a living hope and we have inexpressible joy through Jesus Christ, our risen and one day returning King. In chapter 2, beginning in verses 4 and 5, the apostle likens the followers of Jesus to living stones who are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And in verses 6 to 8, right before our text for the conference begins, Peter unpacks what he says about Jesus there in verse 4. He says, as you come to him, as you, as you living stones come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Rejected and yet chosen. So there's this theme that Jesus is the rejected but chosen stone because you are rejected and chosen stones because you are chosen but rejected or exiled in the culture. And he gives us these stone prophecies, if you will, to support those claims about Christ, to help us to see the implications about what it means to follow Christ. And we see that Christ is the stone on which we stand by faith or by which we will stumble and fall as he's presented to us. Right? You can't, well, the one thing you can't do with Jesus is simply remain neutral or independent. We'll either love Christ or we'll loathe him. We'll either treasure him or we'll take offense at him. And Peter uses building imagery to help us understand our identity and our calling as Christ's people. We are like living stones being built up in a spiritual house, says verse 5, chapter 2. And surprisingly, the foundation of this spiritual house is a cornerstone, but one that the builders themselves rejected. So Jesus Christ crucified and risen. God turns that rejection into redemption in the lives of believers. He's a living stone. and he, uh, Peter quotes three stone scriptures, as I mentioned, which is interesting because Peter, of course, has his name, which means rock. So we might think that this outspoken apostle maybe had a things for all things stony. Here, Peter really follows the example of Jesus himself, who in Matthew 21 calls himself the stone that the builders rejected. And he's quoting from Psalm 118 to explain that his coming sorrow and death were not actually an accident, but was a deliberate fulfillment of ancient prophecy. Verse 7 He came out of the grave, he came out of the grave alive. Peter learned from Jesus that the, the rejected stone would be the Savior. And he explains it here. In verse 6, he tells us that what he said in verses 5, it stands in Scripture. That this is something that the Bible has been talking about. It stresses the authority of the truthfulness of the Scriptures, of, the, of God's Word. And he quotes from Isaiah 28. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And that quotation repeats this description of Jesus as a living stone, chosen, precious. And there in the context of Isaiah 28, God is confronting his people with the, they had a false sense of security because they were the chosen people. And therefore they felt they could have an utter disregard for his word. 
And in verse 15 of Isaiah 28, Judah's leaders have made a covenant with death. Just, you know, practical pastoral advice. Don't make a covenant with death. Not the best place to join up with. They're trusting their political alliances are going to save them from the threat of Assyria. And God warns that hail will sweep away the refuge of lives and waters will overwhelm the shelter. It's not going to stand. God sends Isaiah to sound the alarm that God's judgment is going to come and that their political alliances that they've made are not going to stand in the judgment. And then he points Judah and us to the only source of shelter. I am the one who is building something, God says. I'm the one who's laying a foundation, a stone in Zion, a tested, precious cornerstone of a sure foundation, and whoever believes in, whoever believes will not be in haste. Zion, Mount Zion, the holy city of God, the new Jerusalem, where the redeemed people of God live under God's righteous rule. And this cornerstone, the foundation of this place, Isaiah piles up descriptions that they are tested. This cornerstone is tested and precious and sure. And it's an important part of any building, especially in the ancient world. It stabilized the foundation. It held the other stones together. And God lays this stone as a foundation for something, for God's, I think, some of this depends on your eschatology, but I I don't live here, so I can say whatever I want, and I can go home, and if you disagree with me, it's okay. But I think he's saying that he's laying this foundation ultimately as a picture for God's true temple that will not be built with cedar and and cut stones, but with a blood-bought people who are going to be built into the temple of God. Ephesians 2, I think, actually makes that pretty explicit, calling believers literally the holy temple founded upon Christ as their cornerstone. And Peter explains that Jesus is this person. Verse 4, he is that living stone because he rose from the dead. But if you reject him, he is not the cornerstone for your faith. If you reject him, he isn't that which builds you up. He is, in fact, a a rock of stumbling. You won't be put to shame if you accept him. The alternative is to be put to shame one day by rejecting him. So in verse 7, the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Again, quoting from Psalm 118. Passes that Jesus quoted. And there in, the, in that psalm, the psalmist is recounting that the Lord has heard the prayers, has heard the psalmist's prayers and has become his salvation, that he has done something marvelous in our eyes, turning rejection into redemption. And the, the king who comes in the Lord's name and is blessed from the Lord's house is the rejected stone of verse 22. And Christ fulfills this, of course, as the one who is praised with shouts of Hosanna on the Palm Sunday as he rode in Jerusalem but rejected by the end of the week with cries of crucify. No one in Jesus' day was expecting a suffering Messiah, but he said he had to suffer many things, including that rejection and death. People expect a king to be honored, but Jesus experienced scorn and hatred. Israel's leaders, we know, despised Jesus and sought to destroy him. But in rejecting him, they ironically carry out God's sovereign purpose for salvation. So the text says that believers have honor and won't be put to shame because Jesus endured the shame of the cross and is now seated at the place of highest honor at God's right hand. And if you think about Peter writing to these persecuted Christians, he writes to them as believers who were experiencing shame and dishonor because of their decision to follow a crucified king. 
But Peter reminds them and us that God won't ultimately allow his people to be put to shame. Then in verse 8, Peter emphasizes the disastrous consequences of rejecting Jesus, this precious stone. And he quotes part of Isaiah 8 now, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Isaiah 8 calls us to honor the Lord as holy, to fear him and to fear him alone. And God presents himself as a sanctuary and a stone of offense. One commentator called it the double-edged nature of his self-revelation. That the claim of God's sovereignty cuts two ways. You can trust his promises, come to him as a secure sanctuary in the trials and tribulations of life, or you can take offense at him, trust in yourself, and stumble and fall on him as a rock of offense. There's no third way. Again, you can't be neutral, you can't be indifferent. And we see this most fully in Jesus, where Paul explains that the gospel of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 1, is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, again, those who are the chosen, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus is your savior and cornerstone or your stumbling block and judge. So you see how these are themes that have been prophesied, built up in the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah and and in Psalms, and then reflected in Jesus' life and ministry, Paul's teaching, and now here Peter you know, it's always, I think, helpful for us when we see the, the unity of Scripture on these things, right? We do some biblical theology in seeing that. That Peter concludes verse 8 on this sobering note. It's a scary verse, right? A stone of stumbling and a rock and offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So the apostle here reminds us That God is sovereign over salvation and judgment from beginning to end. That no one deserves the love or mercy of God. As we will hear later on, all of us at one time were not a people living in darkness, straying like sheep. But God has, because of his amazing mercy and love, predestined some for salvation and grace, but also to leave others in their sin who would willfully reject his son and receive what those sins justly deserve. But for those who are the called of God, God has opened our eyes to see this cast off, rejected, crucified Jesus as our living Lord and Savior, whom he calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light to proclaim his excellencies and stand firm in his grace. So we have a new identity in Jesus, right? What do we root our identity in? Yeah, we might draw our sense of self from being part of a family by being a son or a daughter, a father or a mother. We might look to our career, our education, our accomplishments. Scripture reminds us that our identity, though, is not, a, is not achieved, but it's received because we're known and loved by God apart from anything we could do for us. And Peter who has talked about this living stone, who is himself chosen and precious, uses the very same descriptions for us as Christ's people. Because what is true of Jesus will be true of his body, will be true of his bride. We are also living stones who share in Christ's resurrection life. And we have a living hope because Jesus is alive. We're chosen by God, honored in his sight, just like Jesus is. And this unique unity that we have 
is because we're living stones together. One stone sitting by itself is what? It's just a hunk of rock. But something magnificent happens when this builder takes these stones and puts them together and builds a temple. Now you have a place of worship. Now you have a place of of true, deep fellowship. One, and a fellowship that will be eternal. And the world is always going to offer alternative foundations, right? The world is going to offer us political causes, social organizations, sports teams. I don't know, do they have those things? Do those divisions exist here in the Northeast? They do in Utah. But Christ alone offers a sure and stable foundation on which to build our lives together. For if we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, if we have come to faith in Christ, then even now God is building us into this spiritual house of praise that will last into eternity. This building will not be here one day. I don't know when that will be, but one day, it and everything else around us will be burnt up. Living in Utah is interesting because there's temples everywhere and Mormon churches everywhere. They're everywhere. They want you to be able to walk to church. So they're literally, I pass, I live eight minutes from our church and I drive by three different ward houses, each which holds two congregations. So there's six churches, six Mormon congregations that I drive by on my way to church and I only live eight minutes away. And I have the hope that these temples, which are in some earthly ways beautiful. They're nicely built. But my hope is, strangely, that they will one day be burnt to the ground and that the true temple of God is what will remain. And it is one that was not made with hands, not made by humans, not on this hill or that hill, but will be together as the temple of God. And Christ will be the lamp therein on a redeemed earth. Now, it doesn't erase all of our differences, this unity, but it puts those differences into perspectives and allows us to have true fellowship with one another and with Christ. True unity admits diversity. And that's really the heart of fire. It's, in essentials, absolute unity on the gospel, on what's important, on what it means to believe in Jesus Christ and be saved, to be forgiven of our sins through his sovereign work. In non-essentials, there's liberty. We don't have to agree on everything. There are lots of doctrines that we can discuss, and and iron sharpening iron sometimes creates sparks, but sometimes that's fun, and we can do it in love. But in all things, we have love and charity for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And today we have something absolutely stupendous for us in verse 9 that unites us. And that's our text. So that was your introduction. I don't know. Is that a long enough introduction? But you... They were destined to disobey and to stumble over Christ. And God has a sovereign and perfect plan that we maybe not under, we don't understand. And sometimes we bristle at and we ask why. I don't understand it. But it's true. The text is clear. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We were once nothing, without God, without hope, and now we're God's people. And we are defined by the excellent mercies of God. That's what defines our lives. And it gives us a new identity and a new purpose. So there's the introduction, and there's your outline. A new identity and a new purpose, okay? 
I only have two points. It's not very Baptist of me. I should have come up with a third. But the third point probably would have been verse 10, and so I, I can't break my rules. So what's our identity? Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a possessed people. Right? A chosen race comes directly from Isaiah 43, which says, to, drink, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that, that, that they might declare my praise. Isaiah 43, 20 and 21 is almost verbatim what Peter is saying in 1 Peter 2, 9. Chosen race comes from there. In fact, the Greek translation of 43, 20 in Isaiah that Peter uses says, my chosen race, and in the Septuagint it's um, ta ganos mu ta eklekton, but you have ganos and eklekton, and Peter calls them a chosen race, a ganos eklekton. It's the same, it's the same wording that he uses. And then once it's people, but here it's race, but it's the same thing. It describes a people who are joined together, and in Isaiah, joined together, seemingly by the fact that they are descended from a common genos, from a common genealogy, genealogy, right? Because they're descendants of Abraham, the physical descendants of Abraham. As a people, they were joined together by that common uh, ethnicity, but also a common deliverance. They had been delivered as a people by God from bondage in Egypt, And God says through Isaiah that they will be joined together in unity by a new deliverance, a new exodus, which in the immediate context of Isaiah is probably a deliverance from Babylon, a deliverance from exile. So what is Peter doing when he's taking this text out of Isaiah and a a title, chosen race, for the children of Abraham living in exile, and he's applying it probably to a primarily Gentile audience, but probably some mixture of the two in Asia Minor, in the first century. The point is that Israel's deliverance from Exodus and their deliverance from exile in Babylon were prophetic pictures, foreshadowings, types of a greater deliverance that would come for God's people. Not a deliverance from a foreign power, which is what the people wanted, get rid of the Romans. Not from a ruler like Cyrus or Herod or the emperor of Rome, but from the greatest possible deliverance from sin, death, hell, and Satan by the greatest possible ruler, that of Jesus Christ. Which means the church then consists of people who don't share the same ethnicity, but they do share the same spiritual ethnicity because they're born into a new family, born again. So though we don't share a common ethnic heritage, we we share the same spiritual heritage. And we share the same exact spiritual deliverance. We've experienced salvation. We've come through the waters on dry land and survived. And death, as it chases after us, will be swallowed up. The horse and his rider swallowed into the sea. And so the church becomes an entirely new race, a third way, not divided by Jew-Gentile distinctions, but as Christian. And of course, that was a huge deal in the first century. Peter himself struggles with that, right? And it was overcome that historical ethnic division which is why the New Testament talks about Gentiles not joining the family tree, but the family of faith, whose root is Christ. And believers can have Abraham as their father because they have the faith of Abraham, not the ancestry of Abraham. Because we're united, we're part of the, we're, we're united to the seed of Abraham, which Galatians, Paul tells us, is not actually seed plural, but was seed singular. It was Jesus. And if you're with him, then you're part of the group. So can they boast about this family of faith? Of course not. Because faith and redemption and grace 
The grace of God is not a moral achievement. It's not an individual accomplishment. And that's why Isaiah, the context there, is important. The people of Israel are in exile in Babylon. Their situation is called and compared to a drought. They're captives. They're powerless. There's nothing they can do to rescue themselves from exile. But God promises that that is exactly what they will do. What he will do for them. Did they earn it? No. God chose them. He had a covenant with them. And and why not them? Why them and not the Assyrians or the Philistines or the Jebusites or the or any of the ites, right? Because he has he has mercy on whom he will have mercy. And that applies just as much to Israel as it does to us. He's going to bring them back from exile, not because they are so worthy. Because when we read the Old Testament, we read about Israel, we read about the Jewish people, we see just that, that they're just great and worthy of everything that God would do for them, right? No, but they're, they're knuckleheads. But then I look at my congregation and I go, they're so worthy, they do everything right. Your, your people never, never cause any uh, stress in your life. There's never any situations. There's never, Christians never argue and fight about stuff. They never mistrust God. They never have a lack of faith. And I look at my own life. And I find myself like Paul, calling myself chief of sinners into the mirror. It's not because we're worthy. It's because we have a God who has mercy. Independent of us. According to his sovereign purposes. And so what would they do in response to that rescue? That sovereign grace? Would they make much of their merit? They shouldn't. They would make much of his mercy. They complete the purpose of why he made them, which in Isaiah 43.21 is declare my praise. And here in 1 Peter 2.9 is to proclaim the excellencies of him. This fits so well, right? With this letter to elect exiles like us who did not switch from citizenship on earth to citizenship in heaven because they went to some sort of embassy and filled out paperwork, but because heaven itself came down to them and said, I'm going to adopt you into my family. So they can't take credit in receiving salvation. They didn't have a hand in choosing it. The difference between them and non-believers wasn't their intelligence or their superior moral qualities, their wisdom. Those who reject Jesus do so not because they are more foolish, but because they are just as foolish as everyone else in the world. And the difference is God. For whatever purpose he has, he does not intervene in some. And in doing so, he appoints them. Not because he has to work some fresh evil in their hearts, but he just leaves people to themselves. And we weep over this. But God's people... He brings out of that darkness and brings them into the marvelous light. And what should this do to our pride? We know this. It should destroy our pride. It should purify our praise. And yet often it puffs us up. Oh, that we would reject that that pride in ourselves when we see it. And then Peter paints the next three images from Exodus 19. There Israel encamped before the mountain. This is verses 2 to 6 of Exodus 19. 
While Moses went up to God and the Lord called him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. So we're a a chosen race, but we're also a royal priesthood. The idea of a priest is relational. You know, I always talk to our people about you have the offices and you have the prophet who is the down arrow. He brings God's word to the people. The king is the horizontal arrow. He handles logistics amongst the nation. And then the priesthood is the up arrow takes the sacrifices and prayers of the people and sends them to God. So they had a special role. They could, an Israelite could come with a sacrifice and through the ministry of the priesthood have it offered up to God on their behalf. And God would accept that sacrifice. But the people of God were also, as a group, to have this function to the world. That the world might come to know God through the ministry of Israel making him known. And this is why Israel is called to be set apart from the world. Israel was not called to be separate in order to curse the nations, but in order to be a channel of blessing to the nations, to proclaim God's plan to bless the nations through the seed of Abraham. And yet, when we look at the history of Israel, um, they fail to do this because of their disobedience. Instead of being holy as God is holy, they become like the nations around them, and therefore are judged like the nations around them. But the new covenant people are called to be different because God has taken out hearts of stone and put in hearts of flesh and causes them to walk in his ways. So we don't need earthly priests anymore to take the sacrifices of others to God because we all have the same high priest who made the singular sacrifice that brought us to God forever. You know, go to Hebrews for more information. So we are priests making spiritual sacrifices and we fulfill the function of making the saving knowledge of God known through the gospel. You think about that, that the work of evangelism and missions is priestly work. This is what we're doing when we're a kingdom of priests. We're taking, we're we're bringing the gospel to people. We're offering spiritual sacrifices so that the nations might come to know our king. And we're royal because what higher king do we have than the king of the universe? And we're a holy nation. Under the terms of the Old Covenant, the people of Israel became the nation of Israel. They were directed and ruled by God. And we're a a holy nation, called to be holy as God is holy. When did Israel become a nation? You know, again, see Exodus. The covenant at Sinai. On the blood of a sacrifice. The new covenant is in Christ. Symbolized in the Last Supper, where he says, this is my Blood of the covenant poured out for the many. And we're a people for his own possession. Again, he's been saying we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And now he says a people. And he has this kind of cool participial phrase that is directional. He says a people for his own possession. Purposed for God. And it's pretty, it's pretty magnificent what's happened here. That he has... I think Peter has creatively caused the pictures of Exodus 19 and Isaiah 43 to sort of merge together. 
The old covenant called Israel God's special possession. And the word in Hebrew refers to a, the prized possession in a king's collection. That if a king had a treasure store, he would often have a few objects that were the prized possessions of that collection. It's like if you had, you know, if you collected baseball cards or as a kid, you'd have a whole bunch of baseball cards, but then you had a few that, you know, those are my precious. You know, they were the ones that you wanted. They were the, oh, I hide this one back here. It's valuable. It's my prize. God says, I own everything. By creatorly right, I own everything. And yet, the people of God are my prized possession. Even though all the world and all the nations belong to him, we are, again, why? Only by God's sovereign grace, we are his pride and joy. God treasures us. To think that God treasures me, you know, I feel like, was it William Carey who had put on his gravestone a poor wretched worm? That's how I feel. And yet God treasures me by his grace, for his glory, but for my good. Oh, if that doesn't fuel our praise, if that doesn't power our, our praise of his excellencies, I don't know what would. In Isaiah 43, he formed uh, for myself a people. This is interesting here, that uh, he formed a people. And if you look at the Old Testament, if you look at the Septuagint translations of formed for myself is the word uh, parapoesamen. It's the exact same verbal form of, a, of the noun that is in Exodus 19, parapoesis, a people for my possession. I formed them for myself. I formed them for my possession. They are my treasured possession. There's a, there's a link here that Peter picks up on. And he says that this reality of this identity that we have with one another in Christ is what then fuels our purpose. This identity then fuels our, uh, gives us our purpose, which is that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So this is a, a purpose statement, that all these pictures of what God has made us show us now what he has made us for, to proclaim him. Our purpose is proclamation and praise. And Peter's just said that we've been completely remade. We're new creations. Now that everything we do proclaims the excellencies of the one who did all of that. That with our lips and with our lives, we proclaim who God is and what he has done. And think about the type of proclamation Peter has in mind. Right? It's not the kind that just says, Hey, this morning, I just want to let you know Jesus can save you from hell. He did some cool stuff for you. Let's go at it. It could be informational. It could be helpful. It may be accurate. But notice he says to proclaim. He doesn't say proclaim the facts of what Jesus did. Though that would be true and we should do that. We need to declare the facts. But what the words Peter uses, you know, we believe in verbal plenary inspiration. The word is important. He says proclaim the excellencies of Excellencies. 
Jesus redeemed. How I love to proclaim it. Redeemed in the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed and so happy in Jesus. His child and forever I am. Redeemed. We proclaim His excellencies. That we're to somehow, some way explode internally with the excellency and sweetness of who God is and what He's done. You know, lest we live up to the moniker that, you know, Calvinists sometimes get, that you are the frozen chosen. Well, why did, we get, why did some get that name? Because some can talk about these doctrines all day long and look like it never made it from their head to their heart. Yes, we must be accurate. We want to be true to what the text says. We want to declare those truths. But how can we declare these things and not say that they are excellent? And he, his excellency... Is amazing. Oh, that steadfast love is better than life. My soul will be satisfied as with the riches of foods. I've had experience with the riches of foods. But God says, don't be satisfied with that. Be satisfied. And with singing lips, my soul will praise you. The unsearchable riches, the incomparable excellencies. The the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into, again, Peter does it again, into what? Out of darkness into light, no. Out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're not indifferent to God when we see all that he is and all that he has done. We shouldn't be indifferent to this light. We have been bled out of darkness I remember flying one time. I had the opportunity to speak at a church in Cancun. It's where you really labor hard on a mission trip, you know. When it's February in Utah and you fly to Cancun and you left and it was, you know, 18 degrees and there was snow on the tarmac and you fly for a few hours and then it's, you know, it's 88 degrees and humid and you walk out and you you have your coat that you drug with you because you're going to need it when you go back home and The warmth of the sun hits you and you're just like, well, how much greater to have been in the domain of darkness and to be carried into his marvelous light. The light that is a delight to us. Not a concept or a location, but saving faith must have an element of delight or it isn't real. The Bible talks about the joy of our salvation, the joy of faith in Philippians 1. God has made us his home. I think this is the point of verse 9. God has made us his own people, a unique people, with a new identity, royal, priestly, chosen, a new way, not, not of this earth, not Jew or Gentile, but Christian a holy nation, his prized possession so that we would be a people of praise and proclamation of his excellencies. We can take no credit for it. God rescues us by calling us out. New creation. That in the new covenant, we are not only a new nation, but new creation. We were darkness, and hovering over that darkness was the Spirit of God who looked into the soul's 
of sinful creatures, wretched, poor, and helpless worms, upon whom the grace of God dared to say, let there be light in those people. And these, as pastors, it's a hard thing because our people get on our nerves sometimes, you know. They act like sheep. It's almost like they are sheep. What does sheep do? Sheep are pretty dumb. They wander around. They fall into ravines. You pull a sheep out of a ditch, and what does that sheep do? It goes right back into the ditch. You go, I just pulled you out of there. Why'd you go back? It's frustrated. And yet God says, oh, pastor, oh, under-shepherd of King Jesus, remember, those are my prized, treasured possessions. You love them. You be willing to die for them. You tell them what I've told them in the word of God, and you proclaim to them and to the rooftops and to anyone who will listen the excellencies of him who transferred us out of the miry clay and the depths of darkness into the marvelous light of the gospel that we, fe- that we see shining forth in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul says the same thing. 2 Corinthians 4. In their case... The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So do not merely imagine that this marvelous light is a place or some ethereal thing that we'll all float on clouds together. But may we proclaim that this has happened in us if we're believers. Let there be light was the internal, effectual, new creation call of God. And we have been born again to now bask in the marvelous light of our King. And again, you think about it, here are people throughout the Roman Empire, Peter's writing to, composed of a lot of races and ethnicities, Jew, Gentile, Roman, Cappadocian, Asian, Bithynian. And they were not divided because they were united to someone greater. They experienced salvation in Jesus and they had a hope as heaven's citizens that through the one day returning king that they would be fine. They were a new born-again humanity. They were forgiven. They were alive. They were new. And that is the call of our text. To be the church. To be this new nation. To be these new citizens. To have this new purpose. To proclaim his excellencies. And our two ordinances remind us that. We're baptized into the singular name of Father, Son, and Spirit. And our covenant ceremony is communion, fellowship, and what I love when you do communion, you know, you always end it with uh, something like, you know, First Corinthians. And you, what does Paul say at the end of communion? He says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, what are you doing? You're proclaiming his death, his excellency, until he comes again. We do it in our preaching. We do it in the sacraments or the ordinances. And we do it until he comes again. And one day us preachers get to work ourselves out of a job 
because the excellency and the light that we proclaim is one day going to be with us face to face. I can't wait till I don't have a job because there's a better preacher. And I pray that that would be your case as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for having called us out of darkness into light and help us as those who seek to lead the people of God as under-shepherds of King Jesus. May we do the task of proclaiming to this new people, to this unique treasured possession of yours, your excellencies. May we be accurate, but may we also show them the light of the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you've given us this task. You don't need us, and yet this is the way you've chosen to do it, through jars of clay like we are. And so help us to be faithful to the task, but help us to so be in love with your son and his work on our behalf that it cannot help but escape from our lips when we proclaim the gospel. Be with us this evening, and may this light of the treasure of the gospel be a a warm embrace as we sleep tonight. And when we wake up ready to hear once again your word, we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.